Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. So we are a partially online church, and what that means is we don't see online as uh, invalid or a lesser experience in and of itself. Uh, We recognize that there are things that don't work particularly well online. Um, You know, we had an Easter egg hunt uh, Easter Sunday. You can't do that online. Can't have a church lunch online. So there are limitations. But in general, we have online options. Sunday mornings are online. We have podcasts throughout the week. And we have an online small group that meets on Wednesday nights on Zoom. Although this Wednesday night, it will not be meeting. Now, uh, what that also means, though, is online doesn't just mean passive. Online doesn't just mean watching us on, on a podcast or a video or something. It also means engaged. And so we invite people to be we invite people to be engaged in our church. And you can do that through the online small group. You can do that through uh, being connected. Uh, you can do that a lot of different ways. So welcome to Faith on Hill. Uh, we're glad that you are here. Uh, and we want you to know the ways you can be connected. You can be connected through small groups. You can be connected through our social media at Faith on Hill. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify and Apple Music or Apple Podcasts. You just have to search Faith on Hill. And we'd love to get to know you. Now, we are going to have a church work day the first Saturday in June. Uh, So if you'd like to come out and get to know some people without being in kind of a church environment or you just want to come and help out, uh, Saturday morning, June 3rd, that's the first Saturday in June, uh, we're going to have a church work day. We're going to continue our study in the book of the Revelation. And so if you have a Bible, open to Revelation chapter 10. There are three main sets of judgments against the world in the book of Revelation. Now, they are all contained within the seven seals. That every time Jesus opens one of the seven seals that had sealed or bound up the scroll that he took in chapter 5, a judgment happened. But the when he opens the seventh seal, it's so big and it's so massive that It's described in seven sets of judgments that are depicted as trumpets being blown. So, you know, one through six, he pops open a seal, a judgment happens. The seventh seal, he pops it open, and then seven angels appear who have seven trumpets, and each time they blow a trumpet, it's a judgment. So the seventh seal is so big and so massive, it can only be explained in seven trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet is so big and so massive that it can only be explained in seven judgments that are depicted as bowls full of the wrath of God being poured out. So imagine a large bowl, a large bucket full of liquid, and you take it and you slowly dump it out or you quickly dump it out, and that is the justice of God being poured out on this earth. Just as with the seventh seal, between the sixth and the seventh seal, there was a pause. And between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, there is also a pause, and we get some information. The sixth trumpet has been blown, and then in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, robed in a cloud, with a rainbow above his head, his face like the sun, his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which laid open in his hand, and he planted his foot, right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. 
and he gave a shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And the seven thunders spoke. I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up the seven thunders and what they have said and do not write it down. Okay. So some have said that this angel is actually Jesus. And there's some reasons you could see that. He has, um, you know, face like the sun and legs were like fiery pillars. And if you remember chapter one, kind of similar to some of the depictions in chapter one, they say his head was covered with a rainbow. And we saw in the throne of heaven, the, around the throne was this emerald rainbow showing the covenant of God. And so Jesus is our covenant bearer. He is the one who created the agreement between God and the church that we live in him. And maybe that's the case. Maybe that this is representative of Jesus and he comes and he places one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. We live in a global thought. We think of the seas, we think of the Pacific and the Atlantic, we think of the, uh, you know, the North and the South, we think of these things globally. But, but for John's audience, and especially for a Jewish audience, don't miss that, they lived in one sea, the Mediterranean. In fact, in their history, the sea people had come and, and, and conquered and taken, and there's a whole history of that. And you were either people of the sea, coastal dwelling peoples, the Greeks, the Romans, the Phoenicians, you know, they had a coastal kingdom. Or you were people of the land, the Persians, the Babylonians, the, the kingdoms that we would now think of, of, of like Sudan in the, in the uh, upper Nile, and, and the people north of Greece and Italy in those central European regions, in those Caucasus regions where, where now Georgia and Ukraine is, they were people of the land. And what this is depicting is this angel is coming down and he is placing feet on both, authority over the, to, over the whole world. And something happens here. These seven thunders speak out when, when this angel speaks. And John's about to write it down. And a voice tells him, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And of course, human beings being who they are, people over the centuries have tried to speculate as to what might have been said. That's fruitless, pointless work. If God doesn't want us to know, he doesn't want us to know. What's interesting to me is that the apostle John spent a great portion of the later part of his ministry preaching against the beginnings of what became known as Gnosticism, one of the first heresies in the church. And Gnosticism just means secret or hidden knowledge. And this idea of Gnosticism was that the apostles had secret knowledge that they only gave to a few people. And after they were gone, it was like, we have this secret knowledge that only they gave us. And we will tell it to you if you get deeper and deeper into our group. And of course, by then the apostles were dead, so who could refute them? And John was the last of the apostles living. And so he's saying, hey, these guys who claim to have secret knowledge, they don't know what they're talking about. We've told you what we have seen and what we have heard and what we have touched with our own hands and, and, and experienced ourselves. We saw Jesus living. We saw him die. We saw him rise from the dead. We were there at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. We were there when, 
when the uh, Gentiles, the non-Jewish people believed and received faith. So just because it's interesting to me that here's John who has spent most of the later part of his ministry kind of preaching against the beginnings of this heresy of secret knowledge. And then John is given secret knowledge. John knows what they said. I'll say this. I do not believe, and I think there is nowhere in scripture that supports this, that there is some kind of secret knowledge that only super spiritual people get, only a select few. I, I, I think that is where cults develop, both like what we would think of as a cult in the terms of like Jonestown or uh, the Branch Davidians in Waco or uh, you know, whoever. It's also where cults of personalities develop. This idea that God is only working through a select few individuals and they're the really chosen people and all of us are just along for the ride. And we don't have cults in popularity the way that maybe previous generations did, right? They're still around for sure, but, but you don't see the popularity of them. But cults of personality exist in the church. This idea that there are some who have special, super secret knowledge and giftings, and they're the special ones. Rather, what's happening here is something we aren't supposed to know. And that's okay. We don't have to know everything. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea in the land raised his hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea that all, is in it, all that is in it. And he says, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. There's no more stopping this. There's no more waiting. Right now, we live in a time and age of grace where there is delay. God has restrained judgment. We saw last week that there are these angels who have been placed as a barrier for massive war, massive suffering, massive death and destruction. And God has placed them as a barrier. And at some point, they will be removed. And God will say, do what you want to do. Have your way. See how that works out for you. And the people still don't repent. But there will be no more delay. At this point, things are going to start to wrap up. Now, they're not going to wrap up in a minute or even in a day. Uh, you know, this is a seven-year period. We know that from the book of Daniel chapter 9. And we're actually going to have that confirmed in a minute in chapter 11. But this is a seven-year period. A seven-year period where God begins to deal with the peoples of this world and specifically with his chosen people, the people of Israel. But the delay is over things will wrap up. The seventh trumpet initiates those seven bowl judgments that we will get to uh, in a couple weeks. And that's it. There's nothing after that. Your, your chances are over. And there does come a point where your chances end. You know, God's been speaking to you, imploring you, believe. And for a believer, get serious. And for somebody who, who, who has spirituality, know Jesus. The, the, these messages have been coming, but there comes a point where there's no more. There's no more delay. And for us right now, that means death. But for the world, there will come a point where there's no more time. 
Verse 8, Then the voice I heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go, and take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. And so I went to the angel, and I asked him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take it and eat it, and you it will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. The word of God. You know, the, this is not the first time that a prophet has been told to eat a scroll, literally, in a vision. Ezekiel was told to eat a scroll. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah spoke of eating the word of God, taking it in. And there is sweetness in the word of God. There is sweetness in the gospel. When we hear that we can be set free, when we hear that there is hope, when we hear that there is a chance for new life, and it's not just waiting, but we can see victory in this life, we can see healing in this life, we can see restoration here and now as Jesus begins to work and do his actions in our lives and in our world. There's great hope. But there's also great pain and bitterness as we realize that people we love and care about might reject that hope. As we realize that God might have for us, just like he has for John, to prophesy again to many peoples, nations, languages, and kings, that the word of God might be hard for us to take. What if God wants to say something that we don't like, and he wants us to go say it to someone else? What if God wants to say something that we don't like, and he's saying it to us? The word of God, the gospel is sweet. It's refreshing. It's life-giving. And yet it can be hard. Hard to swallow, hard to accept, and hard to speak. But it's what he's called to do. Now, am I called to do that? Are you called to do that? All of us are called to bear witness. All of us are called to live as people who say Jesus is Lord. All of us are called to live as people who have repented of our sins. All of us are called to live as people who say, I follow the true God, the one true God. And there is no knowing him other than Jesus. You can't just say, oh, I I believe in God. I know things about God. Until we know Jesus, we know nothing about God. All we know is the human fantasy. And that can be hard. Now, John had a very specific ministry. And maybe you do too. Maybe you're called to a specific person, a place, a community, an office, a shop, a school. Some people seem to have kind of broad callings. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, they kind of went everywhere. James, the half-brother of Jesus, stayed in Jerusalem. He was just kind of called to stay and pastor his community. Others went far afield. Uh, Thomas went to India. Uh, Other apostles went north into what we would now think of as like the Balkans or, or where Ukraine and Russia are. Some went south into Africa. All of us have different callings. Some are called to say, some are called to go. Some are called to pray Some are called to build. Some are called to restore. All of us have different things we're called to do. 
But it's interesting that as John is told, you must prophesy again, he's going to tell us not about his work, but about the work of others. It says in chapter 11, verse 1, that John was given a reed like a measuring rod. You know, we have rulers and we have tape measures, but they would have reeds or sticks that they had measured off, and then you would base it off of, you know, this length of of reed from the river or stick or whatever's available. And so he's given this measuring rod, and he was told to go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months." And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days in sackcloth, clothed in sackcloth. Verse 4 says that these two witnesses, they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. And they have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during that time that they are prophesying. And they will have power to turn water into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So John is given this measuring stick and he's told to go and measure out the temple in Jerusalem, but exclude the court of the Gentiles because that is being given over to the Gentiles to trample the holy city for 42 months. Interesting. A lot of things are interesting here. 42 months is three and a half years. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, and you can go back, search our podcast history. Uh, About a year and a half ago, we went through the book of Daniel, and when we got to chapter 9, we talked about this. Daniel, chapter 9, lays out what I believe is the closest thing we have to sort of a roadmap of biblical prophecy. It might be, when it comes to biblical prophecy, the most important chapter in the whole Bible in terms of understanding. Daniel chapter 9 says this. There are seven sets of seven a week. So it's, it's 77, it's 70 weeks. Sorry, my math, math is hard, right? But there are, are 70 weeks. And the reason it's translated weeks is because it's, it's seven sets of seven. And I went into this and when we did channel chapter nine, that these seven, seven periods, we have a decade that's 10 years. The Jews had a heptad. It was a seven year cycle. Everything for the Jewish mind went in sevens. A week was seven days. A heptad was seven years. And then when you had uh, so many heptads put together, you had the year of Jubilee and there were all these things going on. So, there are seven sets of seven-year periods. And one of the reasons we know they're years and not weeks is because Daniel chapter 9 then talks about days. And you can figure out that it's obviously not talking about weeks, but years, and it lines up. And like I said, I went into it then. But it says in Daniel chapter 9 that in the 69th week, Messiah, the prince, will be cut off. Jesus appeared on the scene during what would have been the 69th seven-year period. And it was during that period from the order to restore and rebuild Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. From that order till Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, 
It was that 69th set of seven years. And he was cut off. And then it was like God had a stopwatch going and he hit pause. And we have been on pause ever since. Just as there is a pause between the sixth and the seventh seal, the sixth and the seventh trumpet, there has been a pause. God's people rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And God said, go to the whole world. Gather all that you can. I mean, this, this was a, a parable that Jesus taught repeatedly, this idea of, of the wedding feast where, where somebody invited all of his friends and neighbors and the people that were connected to him to his, the, the wedding feast of his son's wedding. And they all said, no, I can't come. And so the father said, all right, go invite anybody who wants to come. God's people rejected him. God's people rejected him. And so the father said, invite anyone who wants to come. But there will come a point, that final seven-year period from Daniel chapter 9, where the stopwatch is unpaused. And God again begins to deal with his people, the people of Israel. And it's interesting. The Gentiles will be given the holy city to trample over for 42 months. That's three and a half years. There's seven years divided in half, three and a half years. The witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days. Now, this is interesting, kind of, because 1,260 days is a little less than three and a half years. So it could be that the witnesses appear a few days, weeks, or months, whatever, into the seven years what we would think of as the tribulation, the final seven years where God judges the world. It could be that they appear at this time and they begin their ministry in Jerusalem. And for that first little under three and a half years, they are there. And then who he would refer to, although Revelation never calls him the Antichrist, refers to him as the beast. But who we would refer to as the beast We'll see uh, in a minute, we'll, we'll get rid of them. We'll get to that in a minute. It's interesting that he measures out the temple, but not when it says the outer court, that's the court of the Gentile. That's the court that Jesus cleansed. When it says he cleansed the temple, he cleansed that court. It was the court of the Gentile. It was anyone could go there, you, me, anyone. And it says, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to have a temple without the court of the Gentiles. Now, you might remember when we started the book of the Revelation, weeks back, there are two main thoughts as to when the book was written. Either it was written around 60 AD or it was written around 90 AD. 60 AD or 90 AD. The people who tend towards the earlier date, what they say is the book of the Revelation was written before Jerusalem was destroyed, and it was written as a warning to Israel that you're, you're about to be destroyed because you've rejected the Messiah. It was written as an encouragement to the people of God who were experiencing some persecution during the reign of Nero in the early 60 ADs. That could be. I'm not opposed to that idea. But I will say this. 
the people who say that, say everything's been done. And yet, if that was the case, why is the court of the Gentiles trampled over? Why is there a temple? Where were the witnesses? We have no record from history or church tradition of anything like this happening. I actually think if Revelation was written in 60 AD, there's an argument that this is a stronger case for all of these events being yet in the future, that a temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, here's what's interesting. I mentioned last week that Revelation is more believable than it ever has been. There were people in, you know, 100, 200 years ago that said, we, we have read the Bible, they're Christians, but, but you know what, let's be honest. There are people who are Christians who love Jesus who have never read the whole Bible. They've only read the, the Sunday school stories, the kids' church stories. They know about David and Goliath. They know about Jesus on the cross. They know about feeding the 5,000. But, you know, minor prophets, First and Second Chronicles, you know, these, these more obscure places in the Bible. They, they haven't read it. There's a reason why we did a sermon series uh, a year ago called The Ten Least Read Books of the Bible, because most people haven't read them. And in the 1800s especially, in Western Europe, there were Christians who began to read the Bible cover to cover, and they said, hey, wait a minute. We can go back in history and we can tell you that these prophecies have no historical equal. That what's talked about of a temple in the book of Ezekiel, what's talked about of the temple here in Revelation, doesn't seem to have happened yet. In fact, as we read it, and remember, Israel was not a nation. The Jewish people were scattered across the world at that point. Israel was desolate. You can go and Google search Mark Twain's account of his journey to Palestine in the 1800s. There was nothing going on there. And I don't just mean nothing going on there in terms of the Jewish people. I mean in general. Like nothing was happening there. It was a backwater. It was a, nothing. There, there was no thriving culture at all. And they said, hey, we think, we think Israel is going to be a nation again. And not only that, we think they're going to rebuild their temple. This is going to happen. And people thought they were crazy. And as I said last week, you can read their writings, their, what they put out as arguments for this, and you can see the backlash that still exists today for people who just took the Bible at face value, took it seriously. And yet, in 1948, Israel became a nation. And things that people said would be impossible, and there is no historical equal. No people group has been scattered 2,000 years ago, remained a cohesive people group. That is almost universally unheard of, and then reestablished their homeland. It has never happened. And there were people 100, 200 years before who said, hey, this is going to happen because the Bible says it's going to happen. They haven't rebuilt the temple yet, but I'll tell you this right here and now, they will because the Bible says it's going to happen. Now, somebody might say, Adam, Israel is an apartheid state. Israel is a, uh, a slow genocide on the Palestinians. I make no defense for the secular nation of Israel. I don't talk about politics in America, but I don't really have a problem talking about politics in another country. I think Israel needs a political shakeup. I, I think... Um, 
even if you like Netanyahu, he's been in power far too long, and there's some really sketchy things. I mean, even his own his own party is starting to like back away from him because they can see the power grabs that he's doing. One party rule is always bad, and Israel's uh, opposition on the other side, hasn't had any strength uh, since um, Ehud Barak back in like the, uh, the late 90s, early 2000s. And so I don't endorse any and every policy that Israel comes up with. I think there are places and times where they are truly, truly terrible towards the Palestinians. There are unexcusable policies and actions that I cannot condone at the same time. I, I'll say this. I have a general policy. If somebody wants to talk to me about Israel and the Palestinians, and they'll say, you're a Christian and you take the Bible seriously, and you say you support Israel. And I generally speaking, I do. I support the Jewish people universally, and I am a fan of the nation of Israel specifically. So they'll say, how do you deal with that? And I'll say this. Do you know how the Palestinians became refugees? And that's sort of my shibboleth, my litmus test. If you can tell me how the Palestinians became refugees, then I might have a conversation with you about it. But I'll say this. There are Palestinian Christians who are suffering at the hands of Israel. That's not okay. And there are Palestinian unbelievers and Muslims who are suffering at the hands of Israel. That's not okay. But they're also suffering at the hands of Iran and Saudi Arabia and Jordan and other places. And it's a complex, nuanced issue. What I will say is this, just as people everywhere are imperfect, Israel as a nation is imperfect, but God cares about the Jewish people and the historical, spiritual, heritage, capital, center of, is, of the Jewish people has, is and has always been Jerusalem. And it is there that a temple will be rebuilt. It is there that these two witnesses will prophesy. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Now, this is who we would think of as the Antichrist. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Gomorrah. So see here, even though Israel is God's people and he's dealing with them and he cares about them and he's going to bring them back, John says figuratively it's Sodom and Gomorrah. That spiritually don't think it's in great shape. Just because there's a temple there, don't think that there's good things happening. Just because God's prophets are there, don't think that it does. The God's prophets are there because things are bad. Because it's called Sodom and Egypt. Where our Lord was crucified. So he's saying, hey, spiritually this place is bad, but it is the city of Jerusalem. For three and a half days, from every people and language, and tribe, and nation, they will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. Now, remember I said that Revelation's more believable than ever? How is this going to be? You would have thought even up to 60 years ago, but now, YouTube, cell phones, satellites, we have no trouble understanding how this will happen. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them. They will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. I wouldn't be surprised if during this time, the church has been removed, the Antichrist has appeared, that there has been a look, a move to get rid of Christmas because of its Christian connotations. And, and there is uh, many indications that 
the world will shift towards one world religion in this time. And so you need sort of a new gift-giving holiday. And they've chosen this one. Three-day feast, the death, the death of the prophets in Jerusalem, I don't know what they'll call it. But they're giving gifts, they're celebrating, and everybody can see their dead bodies lying in the street in Jerusalem. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city of Jerusalem collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. The third woe is coming soon. Who are these witnesses? We don't know. If you read the Left Behind books, which for my generation and the generation before kind of became popular theological thought when it came to the end times, it's Moses and Elijah brought back. Elijah never died. And Moses, God buried him. And so the thinking is, is that, uh, you know, they're coming back. Others think it's Moses and, or sorry, not Moses, but Elijah and Enoch, because Enoch was the other person in the Bible who is never recorded to have died. It just says he, he walked with God and then was gone. And, and, it, and it's a very different uh, way of describing it than for, uh, for everyone else's death. You can find that back in the book of Genesis. The Bible doesn't tell me. I think it's pointless to try to speculate, although, you know, you, you look at it and you say, well, here are these two guys who have never died. Uh, here's, and they seem to have the plagues as Moses did, very similar to what Moses did in Egypt. I don't know if they will actually be them or, you know, uh, the disciples, when Jesus came the first time, they said, hey, the prophet said that Elijah was going to come first and then the Messiah would come. And Jesus says, if you accept it, John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So it could be that these are two uh, people living in that day, not Elijah, not Moses, not Enoch. They're just two people who live in the spirit and the power of those people. Could be. I don't know. This is one of those things that Christians seem, you know, they want to get into debates and arguments over. And why fight about it? It doesn't matter. I don't believe we'll be there. I want to see the thing that actually happens. For three and a half years, they prophesy. And people try to kill them. And they're not able to. People try to, to take them out, and they can't. And then finally, when God says, all right, their time is done, then the beast overpowers them, and you think, oh, this great leader, this one who is opposed to God, he has finally gotten rid of these troublesome people, and we're just going to celebrate and give gifts in his name. And then after three and a half days, the voice says, get up. And they get up, and they ascend to heaven. And everyone is full of terror. It says that the survivors in Jerusalem are terrified and they give glory to the God of heaven. Now, this is strikingly different than every other time. Remember the seven seals. All the peoples of the world know that the wrath of the Lamb is upon them. And they won't repent. At the end of the sixth trumpet. What does it say? Remember last week, they would not repent. But now, 
people in Jerusalem, and it's reasonable to assume Jewish people, begin to repent. These two witnesses, the 144,000 witnesses who have been going around, there starts to be a repentance, not in the world, they will not repent, but among God's people, the people of Israel. I'll say this. There's, these, there's this sort of cycle that's going on in these verses. John is given the scroll, the word of God, and he takes it in and it's sweet in his mouth, but then turns sour in his stomach. And he's told, you've got to go and prophesy again. These witnesses appear, and for three and a half years, they're clothed in sackcloth, which itself is a witness. Like, they're, they're clothed for mourning. They're clothed for weeping. This is not happy news that they have. But they are the ones who bring witness and testimony to the people of Israel, the Jewish people. All of us who are believers are given the word of God. And every person has the word of God presented to them in some way. I believe that. And if we take it in, it's sweet. It's good news. It can be hard to hear and it's hard to receive. It can be hard to share. These people had a testimony to the Jewish people. The two witnesses did. John's testimony is to the whole world. All of us are called to different things. But I'll say this. What would be the testimony to the churchgoer, the religious unbeliever, the person who says, I'm a Christian, but has no evidence of faith in their life? What would be the witness to them? What would be the testimony to them? I believe that there is a calling for true believers to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to bear witness to the gospel. First, to the church to the religious unbeliever. But then, first to the church, but then to the whole world. What's the testimony? What's the witness that we give? I'm going to be very honest. Right now, in America, the witness isn't great. To the people of Israel, do you know most Jewish people think Christians hate them? That shocked me because I grew up in a church that was all about supporting Israel and the Jews are important and they're God's people. But most Jewish people don't see it that way because people who call themselves Christians have been anti-Semitic, have shot up synagogues. They have a long memory. They remember the pogroms from Christians in Eastern Europe. They remember that Germany was officially a Christian nation in 1938 and 39. Kristallnacht was done by people who would have sang hymns on Easter and Christmas. What's our witness to the world around us? Is it good? I was talking to somebody recently, a friend of mine, and they said they were in a work meeting and they were talking. It was kind of one of those like team building exercises. And one of the people sharing about one of their hardest experiences, it was with a Christian and how terrible they had been to them. We have a calling to bring hard truths, absolutely. But the word of God is offensive enough. The gospel is offensive enough. We don't need to add to it. So what, I, what I'm proposing is this, Christians, 
We need to pray again and again, Lord, remove from me the things that make it hard for others to hear your gospel. And that can be that sourness in our stomach, the things that are hard for us to receive. Lord, give me your spirit so that I can share the gospel because it's hard for others to receive. Lord, give me clarity about who I should share with. John was to share with the whole world. These two witnesses were to share with a specific people in a specific place in a specific city. Lord, your work be done. And if you're not a believer, let me say there is a calling here and now to believe. What's it going to take? What's the thing you say, oh, I'll believe if it's this. Really? History tells us that's not the case. If I just saw a miracle, how many people saw the miracles of Jesus? If I could just physically see Jesus, how many people physically saw Jesus and yet did not believe? If I could just have this question answered, how many people have had an answer given and they say, yeah, it's still not good enough? At what point, what's it going to take? Or will you be among those who after everything will still not repent? The message of the book of Revelation is this. Jesus is Lord. This world is spiraling into violence, chaos, wickedness, greed, and suffering. And at some point, God will remove his restrictive hand and he will say, I've been kind of keeping things in line for a while. I'm going to let you have what you want. And things will go insane. You think things are bad now. It's not even close. This is the day of salvation. This is the day to repent. This is the day to be saved from this world of death and to enter a kingdom of life and life eternal. And if you have questions, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. If you're not sure, maybe, maybe there's something I said and you're like, hey, I want to know more about that. We talk about these things in our small groups. And you can email small groups at faithonhill.com for more information. But wherever you're at, whatever's going on, I want you to know this. Jesus is still the same. He is still saving people. He is still changing lives. But there will come a day when the chance to receive his salvation ends. And maybe for you that day is the day you die. Maybe for you that day is the day that your heart is so hard that God just says, fine, I'm going to give you what you want. And he just hands you over to what you have wanted. For these people, that day is the day that they enter this time of tribulation and judgment because it seems like they're not repenting. But know that nobody is too far gone. If God's going to bring his people back, the people of Israel back to himself, no one is too far gone. And that is the good news of the gospel. As we believe it, we live in it, and we have great hope because of it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we say, Amen.